Welcome to another episode of Three Guys and the Mouse. Josh here with my co-host George. Yo, yo. And Hunter. What's up? And our returning mouse, Courtney. Hi. To discuss all the Disney news, including theme parks, studios, Marvel, and Star Wars. And today we continue our feature on the history of Beauty and the Beast. Today we are brought to you by Excess Tech, because if something can't be done with excess, then it shouldn't be done at all. First, I want to start things off with uh, a little bit of, uh, I guess, a course correction or maybe a backtrack. So our last episode, I know we complained about the Easter egg hunt and it's not coming back. Well, unfortunately for us, the day that we actually posted the episode, Disney decided to officially announce that the Easter egg hunt was back. So sorry, guys, that I misled you. Uh, for the four people out there listening. (laughs) So the Easter egg hunt is back at Disney Resorts. Um, For Disneyland, it's going to be at Disneyland, Disney California Adventure, and Downtown Disney, April 1st to the 16th. It's $5.99 plus tax, but one of the things that I thought was incredibly special is this year, all of the eggs are new, so all six. You've got Nemo, Dory, uh, they usually have Mickey and Minnie, but this one they did the Pie-Eyed Classic Mickey and Minnie. Nice. Um, And then you've got Lady and the Tramp. Now, I also wanted to mention this because, uh, of course, like we we talked about last time, the thing with the Easter egg hunt is that it's just a money maker. Because ultimately, you're paying for the egg. And they do very little work to really do it. But it's like a fun thing that people have come to enjoy. I know we're planning to go out um, soon because we actually want to take part and try to get all the eggs if we can. Because that's like a thing that we do, uh, or my family does. So do you just buy like the map and just walk around trying to find the egg? Is it like a cast member have like a basket of eggs and you just give out or something? So the way that it works, um, and it's funny because on the Disney Parks blog they actually said it too. When you purchase the map, you don't actually have to partake in the egg hunt. You can just go get the egg because the whole thing is you go to the return location to get the egg. And what they do is they stamp the back of the map and they give you one of the eggs. Sometimes they try to be funny about it. Like I know the first year I did it, they would like hide the eggs and they would make you choose which one. But then it really quickly turned into a thing where you've got people like me that are completists and they want all of the eggs. So they're just like, stop playing with me. I'm looking for this specific one. (laughs) You gotta find it. (laughs) Yeah, so, um, well, you know, it it would be a thing where they would basically have like uh, six like eggs, like half eggs covering an egg and they'd be like oh choose one and it's like i'm not trying to play three card monty with you (laughs) hand me the one i want i paid six dollars just give me what i want um i do find it odd that they went 5.99 and not 5.95 though i'm sure if you're at the park it probably is 5.95 because they always seem they love to use the five for some reason um the other thing though is uh so if you do do the hunt the map like very vaguely shows you where they should be like it'll be like oh cars land but uh you know there are cast members and they'll help you because of course they're stationary so you'll see them 
Of course, this won't be like the, uh, I know I complained about it last year, but when we did the Ratatouille, like, uh, Remy search, it took, oh, uh, it took a couple of days to realize that what happened is that because of the hurricane, they didn't have them out, which would have been nice if they would have said that, but they did not. That's that Disney World for you, but, um, it is what it is. So the Easter egg hunt is back though, so you've got now until the 16th to go partake in it. In other Disney news, uh, Autopia just reopened, which is funny because I believe it reopened the day after I came back from Disneyland. But uh, this is from the Disney Parks blog. Autopia holds a special place in the hearts of Disneyland Park guests. Yeah, that's true. Um, <coughs> many of whom got behind the wheel of, for the first time on this classic attraction. Today we're excited to unveil an all new look and story for Autopia, powered by Honda, featuring Honda's Osimo, advanced step in innovative mobility humanoid robot, and its new robotic friend, Bird, the first character created especially for this attraction, as they embark on the ultimate road trip. These new scenes feature Osimo and Bird as they plan their trip load up their Honda vehicle and experience adventures that take them from a campground to the sky beyond. Now, um, a few things are new on it. I know I showed you guys uh, in the like mice chat uh, photo blog and stuff, but everything pretty much changed with this because even the um, screens that show you like postcard images and stuff, or you would have like Dusty, Sally, and Sparky from the uh, 97 redo, uh, of Tomorrowland. They replaced those now with its uh, scenes of Osimo and Bird on vacation in places like Las Vegas and whatnot. Um, I think it's a nice like fresh change. Like they didn't change much of course. I know a big complaint online is that the Osimo and Bird don't move at all so they're just static you know in, out there but I'm like you know it's one of those things where it's like ultimately any change was like good to see um, I know that they also changed uh, the little scenes that you would see in the dark area. Uh, I forget what they are, but like, um, it's kind of the same stuff. Uh, or well, they changed it, but I, I want to say it's like the postcard stuff. Okay. Uh, now with the, the complaints against him not moving, I, I didn't say it off mic and I meant to, but the thing is, is you're driving a car. If they're moving and talking and stuff, I don't think you're going to be driving as fast. And I think that would create a problem. Uh, and it's unsafe. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to bring up too, like, um, uh, I ultimately, I think it would be nice if they moved, but it's one of those things where it's like, they're expecting a lot from, you know, the new sponsor because Honda just came in as sponsor. Right. And Honda, the first thing they did is they paid for them to repaint everything. And they say that the, the engines are now like fuel efficient engines. But I know that's another complaint, is that people wanted Honda to change them over to electric engines. Which I'm one of them too, because I agree, there's no reason why they should be diesel, you know, little engines. But I think that's one of those things where it's like, that's a plan in the future, but it's like, that's a massive overhaul mm -hmm. to replace all of them like that. So it's like, for right now, they're doing small things, but ultimately change... I've said ultimately 30 times, but changing the scenes out, like the car park, I like the car park, I'm, I am going to miss that, but I do like that they made some sort of change because it shows faith in the area. And the reason why I wanted to bring that up is a uh, rumor it has been swirling around about how big the 
um, Tron Light Cycle Coaster is doing over at Shanghai Disneyland and that there's rumor that it's very close to getting um, okayed to be built in Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Yeah, well, uh, it also feels the rumors that perhaps another Tron movie is in the works because uh, I know a little while ago, um, the writer-director of Tron Legacy, he actually spoke about what his uh, next Tron movie, which I believe was called Tron Ascension, would be about. But um, I know personally, I love Tron. I've got a couple of Tron figures Ooh, on my bookshelf. But, you know, that's one of those things where, like, I was reading about it, and it's like the scary thing of it is where are they putting this massive coaster? Yeah. And I love, like, in the article I read, um, I think it was Inside the Magic, I don't remember. So, um, but, and, and I, I do want to give a shout out to Nathan because he's the reason why I saw it. But uh, the thing with the coaster that I have an issue with is that they say that it's gonna replace the Innoventions building at Disneyland. And I'm like, okay, except this is a huge coaster. So I'm like, realistically, where is that thing going? And, and that's the thing is, I'm like, I know what the answer is. I know what everyone's popular answer is because it's the same answer uh, that always comes up about the building the Iron Man ride or when they were talking about doing the speeder bike ride, that it would take over the Innovention building and the Autopia uh, area because Autopia is a huge area. Yeah, it is. But this new overhaul of Autopia pretty much makes that a moot statement. That's what I that's what I wanted to bring up is pouring money into Autopia, especially with a new sponsor that came on just a little while ago, you're not going to see them do something that drastic because like, you know, with the with the launch bay, I can understand them doing that because like HP would probably be like, "Oh yeah, well uh well actually, now that I think of it, HP sponsors the Tron attraction, I believe. So it's like, they would be fine with that. They would just turn but Honda's not going to be like, oh, that's a good thing that we just poured millions of dollars <laughs> into this Autopia ride for you to sh like shut it down and rip it apart. Um, the other rumor, though, for Disneyland is that that coaster would actually go into Disney California Adventure, replacing, uh, I know, the same spaces that I've said before about ripping out, but it would be uh, rethemed instead to be the Captain America coaster, uh, which I'm like, that I could see that happening, because that, that makes more sense to me, because that back area of the Hollywood Boulevard mm -hmm. is dead, so it's it like, you could turn all of that into something. You could shut that all down and um, build. <laughs> the other part of that is that for Disney World, that it would basically... They have so much space. <laughs> well, it would go in that back area where Carousel of Progress is. I know they don't want to say that they would tear out Carousel of Progress, but, but that's like definitely what they would do, because <laughs> the area that they're describing is that area. Destroy. But um, that's the thing, is that uh, they're trying to push like new stuff in there because they're about to be celebrating their 50th anniversary, and according to the early reports, they're looking at 18 to 24 months to build this coaster. So. That would perfectly get them where they would be opening it for the 50th anniversary yeah. of Walt Disney World. They better get on that then if they want to hit that deadline, I mean, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll see what ultimately happens. <laughs> um, of course, I do want to bring up, I don't like, I don't like carbon copying rides, but no. at the same time, because it's... That's fine. <laughs> well, because it's a different, because it's a different continent, I'll give it that that's fine. Where it's like, well, you know, how many of us are really ever going to go out to Shanghai that's Disneyland? True. So it's like, if you bring something from there over here, 
great. Yeah. I would love to see Mystic Manor more than anything, but okay. hey, if we get something, that, that would be nice. I have a question on the Topia. Did they take away the driver's license or do they still do those? The card one? The last time I went there, they had already updated those where the back of it is just Honda vehicles. Oh, okay. So, they should still have those. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I'm glad they, they uh, paint the, the cars. Well, I'm glad that they painted everything out yeah. of that uh, gold and green. And now it's all blue. <laughs> um, gold and green. So, speaking of... Uh, things being ripped out and, for no reason. Oh, gosh. So they announced, and mind you, on April Fool's Day they announced this, that the Main Street Electrical Parade has been officially extended to August 20th because of popular demand. To which I say, this is ridiculous. Now, my, my issue with this, uh, you know, I'm not a hater of the Main Street Electrical Parade, but Paint the Night, it, I know, is a huge hit. I've read so many things that they were saying that it's, uh, for a parade even, it's, uh, it was a bigger hit than Fantasmic was, which Fantasmic is the biggest thing Disneyland's ever had, like, for, like, a, a nighttime event. There's talk, though, about issues with the Paint the Night in general, you know, that they're having issues with the LED lighting and all that. I don't really believe that because I'm like, the Main Street Electrical Parade has been running for... 40 years like it's insane it's it been running for so long like yeah <laughs> and so it's like i don't understand that but my thing is that the extension of the main street electrical parade is not good news for paint the night fans because it tacks on the idea where it's like okay so are they actually not bringing it back because i know and i've had people get mad at me about it i was like they're not bringing paint the night back that's what they're telling us and Everyone's like, no, they said it's only limited time. Now they just extended it to a year. So it's like, okay, well, what's really happening then? Because there's no way you've got Paint the Night sitting in the back collecting dust so you can show off a 30, 40-year-old parade that everyone's seen, anyone with a YouTube account has seen. But wasn't it the, wasn't the big rumor, though, that they were moving Paint the Night to Florida for their 50th? That's my thing. That's my my belief is that that's ultimately what we're seeing. Is they're trying to sneakily move that parade over without telling you that they're doing it. Because they get backlash every time they do something like that. <laughs> so I believe that that's what they're doing. Um, of course, time will tell. Uh, but in my heart, I don't, I don't <laughs> believe that the parade is coming back. I think Main Street Electrical Parade, or if they can possibly even because uh, i've seen them do it they could do sensational at night so they they may even possibly do that like i i don't think paint the night's coming back that's my thing um, moving on to uh walt disney world actually i did um i forget the date of it but i did read recently that they finally announced that sensational was coming back and people were like Woo! And I know that was the thing I was saying where I was like, I'm worried that it might not come back at all. But uh, apparently it is coming back. Good. Um, right. I just, <laughs> I forgot to uh, pull up the dates for it. Sorry, guys. But it is coming back. Um, Pandora. <laughs> so this is a, a little Pandora news for Walt Disney World fans. Pandora's up on Fast Pass Plus. Uh, I'm going to read this from the Disney Parks blog. Uh, May 27th. At Disney's Animal Kingdom, Fast Pass, uh, you can now make Fast Pass Plus reservations 
for the land's never-before-seen attractions uh, for guests staying at Walt Disney World Resorts. As you may know, Pandora, the world of Avatar, will transport guests to a visually stunning world with floating mountains, bioluminescent plants, and more. It'll also feature two of a two one-of-a-kind attractions, Avatar Flight of Passage, which will allow guests to fly on a banshee over the world of Pandora, and the family-friendly Navi River Journey, which will send guests down a mystical river hidden with within a bioluminescent rainforest. Guests at select Walt Disney World Resort hotels can reserve FastPass Plus reservations for the two new attractions up to 60 days prior to check-in, beginning today. For all other guests who have pre-purchased valid park admission, reservations will be available starting 30 days prior to their visit beginning May 27, 2017. You, you may select one of these two attractions in your first set of Disney FastPass Plus selections depending on availability. Um, I do want to say I believe people already said that they're already basically sold out, but um, it's that thing where it's like it, you, it's coming. So like right. you know, like uh, we're in that mode where it's like, oh, this thing is about to open up. Yeah. So I mean, I know we wouldn't have any issue if you're out there for the time standing and standby for it, but it, just make your peace with it. You might have to. I do want to say I I've read stuff about the flight of passage about the technical like dealing of it because uh unlike soren it ha um and soren has a very low like capacity level apparently this ride has like an evil even lower like they were saying that each banshee can hold like i think they said it's like only a couple people i think it's like one to two people which i'm like that's insanity uh, and even if like i heard like uh, and my the description i've heard of it i don't like because it's basically the Back to the Future ride. Because oh, no. it's a huge screen and you're on the back of this thing. Um, but it's like, that's so low. Like, I don't know how they're going to pull that off. But um, I hear that it's supposed to be cool, but, you know, time will tell. We'll see. The river journey already looks fantastic. Yeah. The only thing I don't like is their use of screens. And it's very obvious that they're screens. But that's the thing, too, where I'm like, at least, like, uh, and I know, I know I'm just being, uh, uh, I'm just, you know, being a favorite to the fact that I'm a Disney fan, but I'm like, they at least underuse screens, not like Universal, the park, you know, straight across, like they, they so much overuse screens where like people have even complained about that. And I know I didn't go on a big rant about it last time, but the Fallon ride, all of the complaints have been about the fact that they're like, this is just another screen. Where, yeah, where's the fun in that? I do also want to say, because we've seen pretty much how Pandora looks. Yeah. Um, I, I know on uh, Radio Harambe, which is one of my favorite podcasts, they were complaining that the floating mountain doesn't look like it's floating. You can tell that it's uh, supported by the vines that are on it. To which I, I just have to say, you know, get off, get off your high horse, bro. Like... They did a great job making it look like it's floating, and I feel like if anything, because like, realistically, you know that it's being supported by those vines, but it's like, that's a small amount of space for it to be actually supported by it. So it's like, that's spectacular that they were even to pull it off, but even at that, anyone that has seen the movie knows that that's how they look in the movie. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm like, you're you're just being, uh, you're just nitpicking. No, they they wanted uh, them to implement hover technology. You see, I guess <laughs> they got to get on the phone with Stark Industries. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in other news, the uh, they have a new My Disney Experience app. Uh, as they state on the Disney Parks blog, the new My Disney Experience mobile app opens right to the park maps to help you find attractions, restaurants, restrooms, and more. It makes it easier for you to navigate through our parks so you can spend more time enjoying the magic of Walt Disney World Resort. A new, uh, a new section called Spotlight highlights new park experiences and entertainment, or entertainment offerings to help you find out the latest and greatest happenings at the parks. And when you stay at one of our Disney resorts, you will be able to use the new feature called My Resort Dashboard, which gives you access to the resort reservation details all in one place, including the, avail uh, the ability to see room number, theme, that's actually really cool, building and floor once you have your room assignment. That's really cool. Yeah. Because that means that when you're waiting, you just, uh, you can now check that. And like, if you forget, you can just go straight to the app. Sorry, I work at a hotel casino out here in Las Vegas, so that would be spectacular to have something like that. <laughs> um, my resort dashboard even gives you directions to your resort using Disney transportation options, a map showing you the location of your room, and a link to directly call the resort front desk if you need further assistance during your stay. Those are all really cool yeah. things. Um, I, I do want to make fun, though, because when I looked at it, any of us that have the um, Disneyland app, you know that basically what they did is they made it look exactly like the <laughs> Disneyland one. But um, I will give them credit that uh, the cool. resort dashboard part is spectacular because so many people get lost there, even though it's like so obvious. But like people get lost all the time. We remember when we went, people were ha uh, our group were having issues finding out where we were, and it's like we we've been here five days now. How do you not know how to walk down to our room? <laughs> I'm lost. Um, I like right. this. Okay. I'm playing on it. Randomly. I'm going Court. to Disney World in like a few weeks. We get it, Courtney. Yeah. We get it, Courtney. Yeah, you better. <laughs> so, moving on to the studios. They officially announced the name of Wreck-It Ralph 2, which is Ralph Breaks the Internet. Um... Joke, uh, all adult jokes aside, uh, they announced that it will be officially coming out March 9th, 2018. How do you guys feel about the official naming? Not a, too, too big of a fan on it, but I'm not going to sit here and gripe about it because yeah. I think it gets to the point. Well, I found it interesting because that is literally Rich Moore's description of what Wreck-It Ralph 2 would be. Okay. I don't mind it. I would have preferred a different name, but I can't think of one. That, okay, so like my thing with it is what I was surprised about is they didn't go for generic because I thought they were gonna go generic and just straight up call it Wreck-It Ralph, Ralph 2. 2. The fact that they were like, oh, we're gonna call it Ralph Breaks the Internet. I was surprised because uh, not only did they not use the wreck, I thought they were gonna call it Ralph Wrecks the Internet, which, um, which is actually how Rich Moore said it. But um, it's the whole thing where it's like, uh, it's an implied sequel instead of being just like uh oh, yes. i don't mean i don't mean implied like as in it's not a real sequel <laughs> i mean implied like 
they're not just being out front with it where it's like oh wreck it ralph 2 like frozen 2 they're uh or toy story 2 but um <laughs> they're they're being more subtle by being like oh it has an actual name to it it's not wreck it ralph 2 it's ralph breaks the internet so it's just uh, another story well i mean you guys don't have anything if you want to i'm just gonna piggyback on you i mean i agree with what you're saying but toy story 2 i don't know if there's a real name what were you gonna call it you know, Jesse depresses everybody, the movie. That's exactly <laughs> I mean, what I was going to call it. Well, no, I mean, you could have, like, subtitled it. It could have been, like, Toy Story, Woody's Roundup, something like that. Darn you instantly making my, my funny thing. You, you know what? Whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Woody's Roundup. <laughs> uh, moving on, some big news came out uh, about Star Wars. Basically, <clears throat> with the uh, shareholder meeting and... The Star Wars Celebration, they have let everyone know that they are very excited about the outpouring of fans for Star Wars The Force Awakens and for uh, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, and originally they were planning for basically the end to be Star Wars Episode Nine in 2019, however, a lot of rumors are coming out now that they are fully planning to expand on that because they see this outcry of fans and the fans are loving what they see and they want basically they want more so they're planning to do the marvel thing and just keep going yeah now i know a lot of people like to gripe i um i'm gonna gripe really quickly a lot of my friends have told me specifically that most star wars fans now don't like force awakens they're all liars because (laughs) i know Awakens is awesome yeah Yeah. i know all of my fans uh, or all of my friends that are star wars fans they love Force Awakens. I love Force Awakens. One of my uh, one of my um, friends tried to tell me the other day that uh, you do realize that Force Awakens is just a new hope, and I'm like, yes. But I'm my thing with that is that they build on top of things that were introduced in A New Hope, but they also come across things a lot different, uh, and ultimately, I feel like they give more depth to everything. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, Star Wars: A New Hope is a classic movie, but there's a lot of things where it's like, you know, it drags. And, you know, there's a lot of things where you just don't care. I'm like, Force Awakens fully came in with the idea that... Well, at that too. I'll, I'll give... Not credit, but I'll give it the fact that they knew there was going to be three no matter what. So yeah. they introduced a lot of things that you knew you weren't going to get answered until later. Like, the whole thing with Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker... The reason why that was so surprising is because there was no hint of that because they uh, George Lucas wasn't sure if he was going to get more. So that's why you don't get any hinting of that. Of course, you also get a lot of stupid stuff from him when he sees people liking things, which is also why I'm thankful that he's not in charge anymore. For, Force Awakens to me, like just um, the thing is, is it, it hit a lot of things. You had, um, I know I've, I've said it before at length, but... You know, having a young daughter, I love that she's got a strong heroine, you know, a strong female character to look after and want to be like. You've got, you know, a stormtrooper who uh, basically decided he was against what he was raised to be and shed, literally shed his armor and became a hero, Mm -hmm. which is like a great story in itself. Yeah. (laughs) And then as much as people want to hate on Kylo Ren, Kylo Ren you get a very complicated villain because he's not just bad. He's 
a kid who wants to be bad, but ultimately, like, you see that there's something there. There's something more to him. So, you know, that's, we'll, we'll see more later this year what they're going to build on that with. But uh, that's the thing is, I'm like, they, they gave you everything. You know, high I actually reason. just watched but Force Awakens like a couple of days ago. <laughs> I did too. And then like at the end when you see Luke, I still get the chills like, oh my god, he's <laughs> I, I do too. I, I honestly, I watched it the other day. Um, yeah, I, I just feel like everything they did in there was so great. And I know we said it when we originally saw the movie and did the podcast, but... It was so good with just the new characters, I didn't even need to see Han Solo or Leia or Luke because I was sold just with them, which surprised me because I thought I was going to be sitting there in the theater like, when's Han getting here? <laughs> but they, they fully pulled that off. I do want to throw in there really quickly, I still think Han Solo should have lived. Like, <laughs> I, and I know, I know yeah. the reason why he died is because Harrison Ford wanted it to happen. but. They, <laughs> they they could have perfectly, you know, had not had that scene in there. And because uh, that's the thing, too, where I feel like they missed a chance to build on like a really deep, you know, father son aspect to that. Because I would have liked to see the idea of like Kylo Ren as um, because that's the thing is they they ultimately they show Kylo Ren off to be kind of like um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He, he's a villain, but he's not, like, completely hopeless. Like, you, you you get a sense that it's like, you know, he's not too far yet. Of course, um, ultimately, what he does <laughs> makes it so that he's too far now. But uh, that's the thing is they were introducing an idea that he, he was, uh, you know, um, basically like uh, Two-Face in Dark Knight. He was a villain that you were like, oh, well, there could be something good to him. They could... Uh, you know, ultimately transform him. Of course, ultimately what he does makes it so that he's no longer savable. But um, I, I just feel like that was a wasted opportunity. But I know that that, I, I think ultimately that's one of those things where they're like, it's too many storylines at once. You can't have all these things happening. But I'm like, Finn's storyline is pretty much done. Like, other than finding his parents, like, that's it. Ray, we have a whole new thing where it's like, who is she? What is going on? Why is she so force strong? Where does she come from? And of course, you get more with Luke. And, and I, I don't know. I just feel like they really wasted an opportunity with that. I don't know. You know, maybe it's the unpopular decision, but when we went to go see the movie, I ended up liking Poe Dameron's character way more than I was, you know, really expecting to. Well, that's why he ended up living. Yeah, exactly. He was supposed to die. And yeah. That's my big thing is like, I think you get a fourth you know, big character in it because he's willing to do anything it takes. Like, he he straight gets captured and he doesn't lose faith or anything. Uh, the only thing with uh, Poe that I give is he's like, he's one dimensional where it's like, you know, he's he's just a good guy for the sake of being good. But, you know, he, he sells it so so that you love, like I love his character. Yeah. But I'm like, you know, by comparison, he's very, you know, one dimensional. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm here. I've always been you know, about the resistance. And it's like, okay, I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, uh, I love that movie. Yeah, I, I did yeah. watch it the other day. No one can't mess with that movie. Like, whoever said no. it. You, you only dislike that movie if you strictly went into it wanting to hate it. Yeah, I agree. Um, Numbers I, doesn't lie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know, we, we just, uh, I, I apologize really quickly that we got on about Force Awakens. 
I assume you feel the same if you're <laughs> listening at all. But um, the new the rumors that I wanted to talk about is uh, two new uh, two movies. One of them we've talked about before. Um, it's about a Boba Fett movie. Upsettingly, it's not part of the Han Solo. I'm still hoping, you know, beyond hope that that is what it is. But the idea is that um, Boba Fett would get his own movie. The rumor right now is uh, it's not very much, but that he would be working with a group of other bounty hunters. I'm assuming that they would be new ones because by basically the description that they give, I'm assuming that what they're going for is like a Guardians of the Galaxy feel. Uh, which I'm like, I don't think they're going to be using, what is it, IG-88 and, and, and Bosk and all that. But, um, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, the other one, which uh, is the very strong one because uh, the actor himself has been pushing it, is that they're going to do an Obi-Wan film with Ewan McGregor because he's been pushing it. This, of course, would uh, basically fill in the gap between... Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope, but uh, one of the things that's interesting is that uh, the rumor is that they've been talking to Gareth Edwards about writing and directing the movie because they liked uh, what he did with Rogue One. Of course, the question is if he'll ultimately, you know, have what happens to him always and have the ending rewritten, but, (laughs) you know, I I think that's actually very interesting. Hey, he can write a solid 75% of the film. (laughs) I'm not saying anything less, but have we Uh, written a screenplay? No. No, but you you know, to to get into that, I know that that it kind of backtracks, but it really doesn't. I really want them to reveal that he's the lineage to Rey, and that it's not what everybody's expecting. Oh, Obi Wan. Yeah. Yeah. I I would love that, but it's probably not. I see them going way simple with it and being like, no, he's she's just a Skywalker. Because, I, I mean, one thing, um, I, I don't want to get too much into rumors on episode 8 because I've been trying really hard not to read them. I'm not. I know we did the same with Force Awakens. <laughs> There's a lot of rumors. But yeah, uh, one thing is that in Disney's own description, they said that Star Wars episode 8, The Last Jedi, continues the story of the Skywalker um, family or something like that. And people were like, so did you just imply that she's a Skywalker? Because they're like, that's definitely what you did. Because it's I like, Luke isn't the main character. She's very obviously the main character. And I, I doubt, <laughs> I doubt Finn. Well, because the two, basically the two main characters are Finn and Rey. And I know Rey, or I know they're not going to reveal Finn is a Skywalker. So it's like, and then they keep building on the whole thing with the lightsaber. So it's just like, I, they're going to say that she's a Skywalker. I hope not. Oh, that's right. Bob Iger straight up said it. Bob Iger said that the Star Wars films, or the Star Wars episode films are um, about the Skywalker saga. And everyone was like, so that means Rey is the Skywalker? <laughs> with Rey being with Obi-Wan, like lineage, it was funny because a lot of my Pinterest for Star Wars that constantly shows up with those two, like, it makes sense. It, well, it's the only thing that explains why he's speaking in her vision. Yeah, like stuff like that. Yeah. I agree. Other but... than that, it's like, so did, did the lightsaber just hold Obi-Wan in it and he just suddenly knew who touched the lightsaber? Man. <laughs> and why would it be Obi Wan if it's uh, Anakin's? It is what it is. But the point is, is we've got more Star Wars to come, yep. which for us we're gonna love, even though George is wearing a Star Trek shirt. <laughs>
So for our feature topic, we're going to continue our discussion about the history of Beauty and the Beast, the original animated classic. The Beast. So where we left off, um, the Disney company is in peril, and in enters Sid Bass. So in 1984, Sid Bass purchased 18.7% of the Walt Disney Company to help save that company from the corporate raiders that were trying to take over. Now with the new board members that he brought on, Bass restructured the leadership at Disney. He replaces Card Walker and Ron Miller, Walt Disney's son-in-law, with Michael Eisner as CEO and Frank Wells as president of the Walt Disney Company. Now who's Michael Eisner? I know that's a weird question to ask now, but at the time, Michael Eisner, he's a self-professed movie guy from New York. He had worked at NBC and CBS before his mentor, Barry Diller, hired him as assistant to the national programming director at ABC. Now while there, Eisner eventually rose to the position of senior vice president in charge of programming and development, which is a long-winded title. Yeah. But uh, Barry Diller ended up leaving to go to ABC and uh, become the chairman at Paramount, and he brought Eisner on to become the president and CEO, which is basically what he was at uh, Disney. But um, when he's brought in at Paramount, uh, he actually is a huge deal at Paramount. He is the person that, um, funny enough, <laughs> he uh, produced films like Grease, the Star Trek uh, films, you know, be it Star Trek The Motion Picture and Wrath of Khan and all that, and Raiders of the Lost Ark, which, as we all know, is Indiana Jones. Um, it's actually funny, I searched, uh, I was watching Indiana Jones last night, but when I went to search it, I put Indiana Jones and that one didn't come up, and I'm like, because it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> it's literally the only one that doesn't have his name in it. Um, but uh, this is also useful because he already had a relationship with George Lucas before he had come into Disney. So that plays in later when we get Star Tours and the Indiana Jones attraction. Just a little insight for you guys. But um, when Diller left uh, Paramount in 1984... Um, Michael Eisner actually thought that he was going to become the studio chief, but when he got passed over, he started looking elsewhere for a position. And at that point, Roy E. Disney, because he was doing the Save Disney uh, with, uh, you know, trying to get Ron Miller and Card Walker taken out, he talked to Eisner about possibly coming over to Disney, which he eventually agreed. Now, Frank Wells uh, began his career as a partner in the Hollywood law firm Gang, Tire, and Brown, which specialized in entertainment industry law. But then in 1969, he joined Warner Brothers as its vice president, West Coast, and was named president in 1973. Prior to joining Disney, Frank Wells was vice chairman of Warner Brothers Incorporated, the motion picture subsidiary of Warner Communications Incorporated. And Jeffrey Katzenberger, because he's a big, uh, why'd I say burger? Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg is a big deal too, so I wanted to bring him up because uh, this is like a special, you know, thing with just movies in general. But Katzenberg, he began as an assistant to producer David Picker, uh, Picker, then to Barry Diller, the chairman of Paramount Pictures in 1974. Diller moved Katzenberg around the studio starting with the marketing department, but ultimately gave uh, the assignment the assignment to revive the Star Trek franchise, which resulted in the Star Trek motion picture in 1979. 
and he continued his uh, his work um, to keep moving up and became president of production under Paramount's president, which was Michael Eisner. And Michael Eisner brings him over to okay. Disney. So just just like in that like little span, like uh, you see that like what they were trying to do very obviously was um, their main concern was about the motion picture aspect of the Disney company. And you can see that in the people that they brought on. They brought in three movie people. Oh, and I forgot to mention, Jeffrey Katzenberg is put in charge of uh, Disney Studios. Um, so that's actually why he's an important role. But, you know, it, it's that thing. Like, you, you had Cardwalker and Ron Miller who were very obsessed with doing basically the status quo of Disney, of Walt Disney's uh, ideas, which was to keep doing park stuff. And, you know, because of their failings uh, and all the stuff we talked about last time, you see that their big deal was the movies. It was about getting the production or the studio back on order. Well, because we discussed it in the last episode, park-wise, they were fine. Their movies were taken, The park was making apparently like 80% of their... Yeah. Of their so uh, it was money. it was the movies that were providing them like this giant slide. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's this is awful. All right, so uh, once they move in, Eisner immediately goes to fixing the studio. He emphasized Touchstone, which was their adult um, studio, and the first thing they start making is they made Down and Out in Beverly Hills in 1985, and. Then they create, uh, or they make Good Morning Vietnam in 1987, Dead Poets Society in 1989, and Pretty Woman in 1990, and a bunch of other hits. One of them being Splash, but. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Eisner uh, used the uh, expanding cable and home video markets to sign deals using Disney shows and films with a long-term deal with Showtime Networks for Disney Touchstone releases through 1996, and entered. Uh, television with syndication and distribution for TV series such as Golden Girls and Home Improvement. Disney began limited releases of its previous films on videotapes in the late 1980s. Disney moved into uh, first place to box office receipts in 1988 and had increased revenue by 20% every year at the by the point of 1988. So that's why it's a big deal. Like Eisner is a huge factor in coming in here. So this is where we get into Roger Rabbit, and this is like a huge thing, uh, part of Beauty and the Beast and with the revitalization. So Roger Rabbit, um, hoping to connect with a more adult audience, then President Ron Miller had purchased the rights to Gary K. Wolf's novel Who Framed Roger Rabbit in 1981. The project went through many hands until 1985 when Eisner came into Disney. Eisner saw the film as a great opportunity to work with rival studios and approached Amblin Entertainment, which consisted of Steven Spielberg, Frank Marshall, and Kathleen Kennedy. Those names are also important because Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy um, are the people that produced the Indiana Jones films, which is how Eisner knew them, but they also run Lucasfilm now. Nice. Okay. So Katzenberg and Roy... Uh, Roy Disney hoped that the use of animation in the film would save the animation department. However, Spielberg's contract gave him extensive creative control, which turns out to be a huge issue later. But Spielberg was necessary to get the rival studios of Warner Brothers, 
Fleischer Studios, King Features Syndicate, Felix the Cat Productions, Turner Entertainment, and Universal slash Walter Lance Productions to lend their characters out. However, some studios like Warner Brothers had very strict terms for their characters. Warner Brothers specifically wanted their characters to share equal screen time with Disney characters, which is hence why uh, you get the two big scenes uh, with Disney characters where you've got Donald Duck and Daffy mm -hmm. Duck sharing their scene together with the dueling pianos and the Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse skydiving together. The real reason why those scenes are there is it was to make sure that they had the same amount of screen time. So, uh, like I said, that that's the thing is that you've already got the stu uh, the animation studio is like on a downward slide. They feel like they're unwanted and unneeded. And basically, Eisner feels that way. He He's not saying it, but he feels that way. He just, he doesn't care about them. He doesn't see anything worth in them. However, I will give him credit because at the same time, when they were asking if they would keep producing um, feature-length animated films with them all failing, he did state uh, that they would keep doing it just because that was Walt Disney's, Thank you know, thing. So mm -hmm. he was like, I'm not going to go against that. But, but to be fair, you can understand. <laughs> uh, you can, to, like I'm saying, to be fair, you can understand his hesitance with it, though. You know, towards the animated area, because it's like they were producing movies that were just below Disney standards. Yeah, like that. That's one of the things that, um, especially in the research that you see, is it's like they weren't producing anything great, and it's like even though Eisner didn't say it, he didn't trust them. And he, uh, like I said, he saw this film as a great opportunity to have like a huge movie. So it's like he saw the Disney Animation Studio and was like, no, you're not touching this. <laughs> Step back, please. So Robert Zemeckis was uh, hired to direct in 1985 based on the success of Romancing the Stone and Back to the Future. George. <laughs> <laughs> But Disney executives were, uh, were continue, continuing to suggest Daryl Van uh, Sitters to direct the animated sequences, but Spielberg and Zemeckis decided against it. Richard Williams was eventually hired to direct the animation. Zemeckis wanted to, the film to imbue Disney's high quality of animation and Warner Brothers characterization and Tex Avery humor. Uh, animation director Richard Williams admitted he was openly disdainful of the Disney bureaucracy and he refused to work in Los Angeles. So to accommodate him, and that's also why one of the issues with Roger Rabbit is its incredible production costs. Yeah, because going up. Well, that's the thing, is to accommodate him and his animators, his production was moved to uh, El Elstree Studios in Hurt... Shire, England, which oh was a huge Lord. expense because you've got the movie filming in LA and you've got animation across animation the seas. being done across the seas. But oh. his issue, and <laughs> that's the thing, is what he talked about with the bureaucracy is he didn't like uh, Katzenberg walking in and seeing what he was doing or Eisner checking up on him, so he wanted to be away from them. But you, you, you know, you know, whatever. <laughs> It works so, out. <laughs> Disney and Spielberg also told Williams that in return for doing Roger Rabbit, they would help distribute his uh, uncompleted film, The Thief and the Cobbler. The Thief and the Cobbler is like a, a big movie for him. 
It was a movie he hand animated and worked on for like 30 years or something Ooh. like that. He eventually did release that, I think, in like 2011 or something ridiculous like that. Yeah, he's that's insane. A, that's a long uh, Supervising ad- uh, animators included Dale Bear, James Baxter, David Bowers, uh, Andrea Stasia, Chris Jenkins, Phil Nibelink, Nick Ranier Ree, <laughs> and Simon Wells. The, anima- uh, the animation production headed by associate producer Don Hahn was split between Richard Williams London Studio and a specialized unit in LA set up by Walt Disney Feature Animation and supervised by Dale Bear. The production budget continued to escalate while the shooting schedule lapsed longer than expected. When the budget reached $40 million, Disney president Michael Eisner seriously considered shutting down production. But Jeffrey Katzenberg actually was the one that talked him out of doing that. Now, despite the budget escalating to over $50 million, Disney moved forward on production because they were enthusiastic about working with Spielberg. Now, a thing that's a thing that I notice now. It's like a lot of people don't see like the importance of working with Steven Spielberg, but at the time, he was a huge director. You know, with Jaws, E.T. Well, Jurassic Park wasn't made yet. Comes in the nineties, yeah. But that's the thing is, like, he was a huge person to have with them, and that's that's the thing. And this is like a like a nepotism or whatever you want to call it um, thing that Disney does. They will they will openly produce films that they know will not do well, just because they want the relationship that they're getting out of it. That's how you get things like, and I love the movie, but Frankenweenie. Uh, with uh, Tim Burton got made because Tim Burton wanted to make the movie uh, but ultimately Disney didn't care to make that movie it got made because Tim Burton wanted to make it and Tim Burton had just made Alice in Wonderland the live action one in 2010 which had grossed a billion dollars so they wanted to just keep that relationship going just like Johnny Depp they they do that all the time with Johnny Depp where they're like whatever we'll just produce whatever you want (laughs) We don't care. Yeah, as long as you keep making Jack Sparrow movies for us, we don't care <laughs> what other stuff you want to make. You can make horrible movies, but Sparrow? Yeah. You keep they, doing that for us. Uh, they do it all the time. I mean, just in the list I gave you, they made a couple films with Robin Williams just for the sheer fact of having Robin Williams. Good Morning Vietnam and Dead Poets Society. Like, those are dark like films, ultimately, yeah. against who he is as a comedian. But they made him because they wanted the relationship of having him. Which is good in the end of the day. Sunset Flipper. <laughs> hey! <laughs> well, that's how, that's how they actually keep Robin Williams around to uh, get things like Aladdin mm-hmm. and Flubber made, is just having him. Um, in 1988, Disney... Uh... Okay, uh, in 1988, Who Framed Roger Rabbit finally comes out. Uh, co-produced with Steven Spielberg and Amblin Productions. Uh, the film, in- of course, well, I'm giving you like a quick description, but the film introduces a sh- the idea of a shared universe between animated characters, with Toontown consisting of all characters, Disney, Warner Brothers, and more. Now, this movie is a huge success. It opens on June 22, 1988, and grossed 11 million dollars in 1,045 theaters during its opening weekend, ranking first place in domestic box office. 
The film would later go on to gross $156 million in North America and $173 million internationally, coming to a worldwide total of $329 million. Now in 1988, that is a ton of money to make on a movie. Especially at that. It's a PG movie with uh, live action and animation in it. Yeah. Uh, at the time of release, Roger Rabbit was the 20, 20th highest gro- grossing film of all time. The film was also the second highest grossing film of 1988, behind only Rain Man. I find that <laughs> hilarious, by the way. Rain Man of all these. <laughs> but that's the thing, is you've got this huge movie. Now, this is where we finally start getting into the Beauty and the Beast part, because for years they had been trying to make... Uh, Beauty and the Beast. So, um, the animation studio was not the same machine that it was in the heyday of Walt Disney. The revered nine old men were running, were running everything and were reluctant to change. Part of the downfall from the 70s was due to the animation studio's attitude towards change. They were making films the same way as they did with Walt. The storytelling and animation made no changes. One thing people garnered respect for with the studio was that during Walt's time, they were always pushing the envelope forward. With Mickey Mouse, he brought to life sound sound cartoons. Mickey wasn't just a breakthrough in sound, it was a breakthrough in storytelling. That's like, um, that's like a a little like thing I want to go into too, like, because I'm listening, uh, I'm listening to an audio book for Walt Disney, the Neil Gabler book. And that's one thing they talk about is like, uh, Walt Disney was very big on bringing character to animated characters, but or personalities specifically. But that was a thing in his time. A lot of people forget that that was not a thing. Like Felix the Cat was the biggest animated character before Mickey Mouse, but he had no personality. He was just a cat that did funny stuff. Right. Mickey Mouse is the first character that is introduced with personality, and people like him because of who he is. Because, like, you could say you know who Mickey Mouse is. And, of course, a lot of that is attributed to the fact that he's very much Walt Disney. Yeah. But that's the thing is he brought that. Um, Animated cartoons... Yeah. Uh, Animated cartoons before Mickey were mainly gags and laughs. But Walt always felt like cartoons should tell a story. And then with Snow White, Walt showed that an animated film could work and could keep an audience's attention. Pinocchio was at times funny and lighthearted, and other times it was scary and dark and giving lessons, uh, mora- uh, moral stories, basically. Ah, I totally messed up my wording. But, um, it was giving you lessons in morality. Fantasia was a marriage between music and art. Bambi was a work of art in itself. But without their patriarch, now the studio just kept pushing out films that they felt like were just Disney style. Now, with Eisner now in control, he gave animation to Roy E. Disney, Walt's nephew, and his brother's, uh, his brother Roy's son. Now, Roy hoped uh, to bring the animation studio back to where they were, to be, you know, the standard. Right. <laughs> Beginning with the Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company, Disney Animation saw their stark starting to rise. They were start- They were finally getting critical and financial success, but in 1989. Uh, John Musker and Ron Clements would release the film considered to begin the Disney Renaissance, which is The Little Mermaid. 
Ooh. with fun, lovable characters combined with music from Alan Menken and lyrics by Howard Ashman, Little Mermaid connected with audiences in a way that they hadn't seen in years. Ashman and Menken's music helped mold the story and characters so well that they won two Academy Awards for Best Score and Best Original Song for Under the Sea. Now, this is very important because this is the first time that they had had that since Dumbo in 1942. Wow. Dumbo was the last animated film to win an Academy Award. That is craziness. <laughs> yeah, no, like... Uh, That's a I, huge stretch of time. Well, I went over, like, a lot of stuff, but it's like, you know, ultimately, you just see that Eisner doesn't see anything in the studio. But luckily to Katzenberg and... Roy E. Disney, they push the animation studio where they finally start making things that are worth time. You know, and, and like I said, you get Great Mouse Detective and Oliver Company, and it's like, those are like moderate hits, but that's the thing is for them, like that was better than anything. And of course, that's why I gave it the fact that you get Little Mermaid, which is this huge hit. And they're just like, that was the moment when Finally, he saw the, the animation studio just like, oh my god, like the, we could do something with these people. He's like, oh, look at that. They have that magic again. Right? Yes. <laughs> now, during that time, though, uh, originally, Katzenberg offers the job to uh, Richard Williams, who did the animation for Roger Rabbit, to do Beauty and the Beast. Now, Beauty and the Beast... The whole thing with that is that uh, Beauty and the Beast for a long time was like a movie that they wanted to make. Like the Nine Old Men even said that there were times that they tried to do it but they couldn't get it to work. Now Richard Williams uh, actually ends up declining to do the movie because he wanted to continue his work on the film The Thief and the Cobbler which I went over earlier. Now Williams suggests his friend Richard and Jill Purdom, a husband and wife team in England. The, uh, they get the offer and the Purdoms Putum, Putum, accept and begin work. Now they, uh, they animate about 20 minutes of the film. So this is where I want to go into this. So they, they did like kind of a dual thing. So the thing I want to get across though is like, because this is still 1988, you're dealing with a fact that at the time, they still don't believe in the studio yet, in the animation studio. So they offer it to a third party by being like, hey, we'll have the Purdoms direct this, but we'll also have some of the Disney animation crew here, which I feel like is so stupid in general. But um, <laughs> the uh, Disney crew that they send out there with them would be Don Hahn uh, was named as producer and... And Glenn Keane, Andreas Deja, Tom Sitto, Derek Gogol, Hans Bacher, uh, Jean Gilmore, Tom Enriquez, Paul DeMayer, Allison Hamilton, Mel Shaw, and Michael <laughs> Dudek DeWitt, they all join on to work on it. So they go out to England to do work on this. And I know you guys can't see this. Uh, feel free to look up the Purdom version of Beauty and the Beast because it's online. But what they create is just awful. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that's ultimately the saving factor for Disney animation. Um, I'll give you... This is from the 
Kayla as old as time, the art and making of uh, Beauty and the Beast, which I know Courtney wants to plug that she has the new version that includes the live action film. But <laughs> <laughs> So the whole thing is that they start making this movie. They end up doing like a, a bunch of drawings. Uh, one thing I give them credit for is their landscape drawings are ultimately what go into the final product, which is funny because they just <laughs> rip them out. Yeah. Like, uh, let's see. The, like, uh, they did drawings of the Beast Castle, which looks exactly the way as yeah. it does yeah. in the movie. Uh, Belle's Cottage. The, even the town, like, it all looks the same. The village, or the village, all looks the same. What's very different is the story. So, yeah, and that's the thing is that, uh, okay, so I'll get into it. But, um, so the script was set in 18th century France. They chose a date of 1709. Uh, the, so this would be the later years of Louis XIV uh, were very drab. Like, that's the description. So, under the influence of the prudish Madame de Maintenon, the aging king abandoned the glittering spec spectaculars of his early reign. By that time, men had stopped wearing the huge court wigs and long coats they hadn't really adopted what we think of as the classic 18th century style, the George Washington look. Belle and her family were out in the country, not in Paris or Versailles, uh, Versailles, uh, Versailles. and frankly, everything looked kind of dull. That's, <laughs> that's a straight description that they give. <laughs> Where is it? Okay, so this is their, their version though. So once upon a time, a widowed merchant had a fine home and many ships sailing the sea. The merchant, Maurice, who looks like the actor Jack Lemmon, <laughs> why not, uh, yeah. loses his fortune just as his uh, grasping sister, Mar Marguerite, joins his household. Belle and her younger sister, Clarice, and her cat, Charlie, move with their father and aunt to a cottage in the country. Aunt Marguerite... Uh, complains about their loss of status and schemes to wed Belle to the Marquis Gaston, a foppish, a foppish aristocrat. For her seventeenth birthday, Maurice gives Belle an elaborate music box that had been in, uh, that had been her mother's. Later, when soldiers demand an overdue tax payment, Maurice must take the music box back and sell it. When he rides into a nearby town, the box is destroyed. On his way home, Maurice loses his way in the forest and is chased by a pack of wolves to the beast's castle. While brushes and other implements care for his horse, Orson, the merchant is waited on by a bevy of enchanted objects that have neither faces nor voices. Um, Just so uh, <laughs> the yeah, the artist didn't storyboard the scene of Maurice taking the rose and confronting the beast, but jumped straight to the uh, merchants being sent home in a flying sedan chair. Belle sneaks into the chair while her father sleeps, knowing it will take her to the castle. Charlie insists on going with her. When the family discovers that Belle has gone, Aunt Marguerite suggests to the gullible Gaston that he attack the castle, claim Belle, and kill the beast. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So this is the version that they produce. 
and that's the thing is that what happens is uh, they they create like a pencil sketch or however you want to put it of animation of 20 minutes of the movie. They fly out to Disney MGM Studios at the time in Walt Disney World, which is where uh, I know a lot of people don't recall, but that was another thing is that Disney Animation was moved from the animation studio in California to Disney World. So that was like part of the issue of the of them feeling like they were unwanted. So um, they uh, the Purdoms fly out uh, with Don Hahn to show off the what they've made. And they screen the 20 minutes and Katzenberg hates it. Just completely hates what Can't he sees. blame him. Yeah, and um, let me see. Yeah, he states that uh, the biggest issue with it is that there was no personality. And then one of his biggest issues is that he said that Bell and the Beast wouldn't even be introduced to each other until like halfway through the movie. And he's like, and the whole point is them. Uh, like that's the whole thing is there's no there's no personality in anyone except the villain which is the ant and he felt like everything was just muddy so what he ends up doing is he uh decides to send them on a uh he sends them on a trip to france to uh, as a research trip so he sends that whole team out including the Purdoms. they love it of course it's not on their dime exactly yeah they eventually come back now, this is the saving grace, is when they come back, it's, uh, it's very clear at this point that Katzenberg does not like what he sees. So, he puts on a lot of things that he wants in the movie, and it's the things that he wants to see. And one of the biggest things is he tells them, he's like, uh, because originally the movie was not going to be musical in any way. So he tells them, hey, because Little Mermaid is a huge hit, because this is now 1989, he suggests that they're going to make Beauty and the Beast now musical. And he sends uh, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman out to meet with the Purdoms. The Purdoms get annoyed at this because it's not true to their version of it. So they uh, formally leave the project amicably, I'll say. It, it's nothing like they were fired or anything, but they decide they're like, hey, you know, this isn't working out. You guys don't want to do what we want to do, so we're going to leave. And he ultimately right. says, that's fine. See you guys. He's probably saying, like, good, that, that, that makes us I don't have to have an awkward conversation with you guys. <laughs> so that's December of 1989. I want to bring that up specifically because of the insanity of this. So this is where he finally turns to Disney Animation and gives them the project, which Roy E. Disney was loving because... Roy was pushing that they should get to do it the whole time. So once the Purdoms leave, he gets that chance. Now, with no script and no team, Katzenberg chooses two story artists, Kirk Wise and Gary Truesdale, to direct the film. Wise and Truesdale, at the point, their only credit had been Cranium Command, the, mo the motion attraction at Epcot, which is basically like a, a different version uh, of... Star Tours. That was their only credit. Oh, and he that... gives them the job of directing this movie. That that Body Wars type deal, right? It is Body Wars. Oh, uh, well, it's not Body Wars, well, yeah, but it's but... yeah. It's not like that. Anyway. So that's the thing though, is you're just like Oh wait, no. Um 
you're right. Cranium Command is a four minute short. But that's the thing, is it's like, this is insanity. You just gave it to two guys you know nothing about. have nothing under their belt. <laughs> but uh, this is where we're going to end this one. But the reason why I want to bring this up is because this is December of 1989. And they have a hard release date of 1991. And now they're starting over from scratch. So following into the making of the movie, you're going to see... Uh, later on, I'm just gonna give you a quick preview, but because of the short timeline, you get a lot of things that get rushed. You get a lot of them borrowing, as they put it, scenes from other films and other animation sequences. But um, the thing is, is that it's like one of those things where what you get out of it is better, uh, yeah. is worth what they did. The only thing, the only movie I can honestly say I can think of as the same would be Toy Story. Toy Story was almost the same where. They had to produce a film so quickly, but ultimately they were able to pull it off. Yeah, and it became a huge hit. But, uh, yeah, for this part, my main thing I want to put out is, like, just how crazy all of this was to build up to them actually making this movie. Yeah. I don't know, what are your guys' thoughts on all that? It's crazy. Like, I just think it's all crazy. Well, it's funny because we were discussing it off mic that, you know, these animated movies, we, people may not realize that they only have, what, three, four years to make it. And suddenly these guys are thrown and they're like, so we're giving you the keys to this, to this thing, but you've got two years because we have to make our release. Yeah, and that's like stressful. Yeah. Know? Well, that's the thing. Um, I know a lot of people don't understand, but... Animated films take three to four years, at, or I think it's actually more like four to five years to make. So it's like the idea that they gave it to them and they were like, so you need to make this thing in two years. That was insane. Yeah. It's had... like working day and night, like nonstop, just trying to finish <laughs> all this stuff. Like well, that, the photos that you show us, the, like for example, like Gaston or that George Washington yeah. looked at. That's crazy. Like, I never knew that. Like, yeah. Yeah, I would have Yeah, with that. the powdered wig and all yeah, that. Yeah, I was like, really? Like, that's how... Thank goodness they well, formally resi- uh, resigned. See, that's the thing, too, is that uh, they go in-depth in the book about it. I totally suggest if you guys are interested in it, reading the full book, because I'm giving you a much shorter version. But the thing is, is that um, they, were, they wanted to stay very true to uh, this, like, Beauty and the Beast, like, film that had been made. But that's the thing, is it turned into a whole thing where it's like, you're trying to recreate a live-action film, we're trying to tell a tale as old as time, and you just want to be like, no, I want it in fact, and I want it to be uh, really, like, true to, like, French old-time stuff. And it's like, why? Like, it's an ugly look. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's sad. (laughs) What I do find funny, though, um, and if you go in there, you can see it, or uh, I'll, I'll post it on my Twitter, too, so you could see it on there if you want. But the pictures that they show of Cogsworth that the Purdoms had done make me laugh because that is literally the one that they went with for the live action version. So you kind of see that they borrowed a lot of that stuff, but that's also a big thing in Disney. Nothing ever dies. They keep everything. It gets recycled, yeah. reused. They find a way to use it. I what like are that. some of your thoughts, Courtney, since you're a huge fan? Did you know a lot of this stuff, Courtney? I haven't actually gotten to read my book yet, so I didn't know like about this stuff. Well, it's I'm... really interesting. What I found funny is the magic chair that brings you to the castle. I was like, what? Yeah, like um, uh, another thing we wrote it. 
Well, another thing I, I would totally suggest um, in watching is Waking Sleeping Beauty, because that's a documentary that they had made a little while ago, but it talks about the Disney Renaissance, and ultimately it talks about basically Beauty and the Beast, because at, I like to put a lot of emphasis on Little Mermaid, because Little Mermaid started the Disney Renaissance, but um, the one that's largely you know, considered for it is Beauty and the Beast because Beauty and the Beast is a huge landmark film in the things it accomplishes. Right. <coughs> Which is also why we wanted to get in depth on this. Yeah. I also like specifically wanted to get in depth because like all the stuff that happens before, so many people don't realize that all that stuff happened. And yeah. I know I talked about that last time, but it's like you the, forget about the it. corporate raiders or the fact that they handed it off to a third-party company because of Roger Rabbit. Like, that seems so crazy. And I also wanted to bring up Roger Rabbit, too, because, like, I was talking about this uh, to some friends, and they didn't remember that Roger Rabbit was such a huge deal when it came out. I'm like, it was. Like, um, I know they get into, uh, into it a lot when you talk about Disney MGM Studios, the park. Like, Roger Rabbit was supposed to be a huge presence in that area because he was such a big film. There there was a sequel that was planned, but then that also goes into the whole thing with Steven Spielberg, that ultimately you get this bad blood between Disney and Spielberg because of all the little, just the little um, stuff that he does because they gave him too much control and that ultimately bites them in the butt. Right. Yeah. Because they're like, like, I don't know. Suddenly we, we don't think you should have that kind of power. <laughs> he's like, what? How dare you? Right? Well, he he's Steven Spielberg. Yeah, so. he's still he That's is. the thing, though. It's like... Um, he can do whatever he wants. Well, <laughs> like, like I said, we'll, we'll get into like the actual making of the film because there's a lot more stuff that goes into it. But it's like, um, in all this before stuff, you get a revitalized company, which is already starting to show. But you're also starting to get the Disney Animation Studio finally getting back on its feet and seeing like what they can do. And that's the, that's the most important part is you finally get them coming up. And like, I, that's why I got into detail on that. They didn't, they were so scared of change. They just kept doing what they felt like would, they would have done. And then they finally just start doing things that seem right. guys uh, for listening and getting all the way through that i hope you guys enjoyed our feature um i'm gonna tell you really quick i know we've been a little like uh, spotty on coming up with episodes that's partially my fault i've been doing a lot of stuff uh for my career and whatnot go to uh geocomedy.com if you want to keep up on that uh, i i'm just gonna plug that but um anyway uh seriously thank you guys uh i do want to say we, we are coming up with like a more like a schedule for releasing things, so see that coming up. We're going to hit that more. Um, but once again, thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for continuing to listen. Thank you. Uh, you can hit me up on any social media. I'll be uh, on the Twitter. I'm at GeoDisney. That's G-I-O Disney. And you can also hit me up on GeoComedy, which is G-I-O-C-O-M-E-D-Y. Uh, that's for Twitter, anything. And my website, you can hit me there. But uh, seriously, thank you guys, um, and 
You got anything you want to plug, George? Uh, no, uh, not really. But you can follow me on Instagram, <laughs> J182 Hunter. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram, the Disney Guy24, or at Twitter, Hunter 3D ATM. I was trying to add more numbers, but they said something about not being allowed to. I guess. <laughs> G 3G ATM24. Excellent. Tom Brady underscore. <laughs> I'm on Instagram under Court Giordano, which is Court, and then my last name, which you can find off Josh. That's a long name. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you just said that like people know that. Yeah. But uh, seriously, one. thank you guys. Uh, I do really quick uh, at the end here want to bring up, uh, I did just go to Disneyland, and I saw the Red Rose Tavern, which was uh, actually very well done. I was surprised. Uh, I know I'm giving this at the end, but figured you might want to know. It was um, awesome. The... Tower of Guardians or whatever you want to call it looks awful. Like it is, it is completely an eyesore. Like it's so ugly looking. Um, Star Wars Land looks amazing though. Looks like they're super getting uh, pushing that um, forward. The Rivers of America work looks like it's also going very forward. I'm super excited for like the time we're living in right now. So those are great things to see coming to fruition. Sort of. Guardians. <laughs> Guardians, I, I, I keep going on about this. I think Guardians is going to be a great ride. It's Don't get me wrong. Fun. I think the building looks awful. Just <laughs> ugly. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. But uh, thank you again for listening. Um, make sure to hit us up. You, can, uh, uh, you guys can go ahead and subscribe to us on iTunes. Or you can follow us on Spreaker. Or you can direct, uh, directly download us from my website, which is uh, geocomedy.com slash 3GATM. So thank you guys again. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Nathan, for, uh, your <laughs> for living at Disney World now, you jerk. But uh, thank you guys, uh, seriously, and we'll see you guys later. See you later. Later. Bye. Ka-chow.